0: I say everything gonna be all right. I say everything will be alright. All right, good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 13th, 2015. We're up to episode 356 this week. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio and at the controls is John. And now I got faith in John. John Faith is my engineer this week. He's done a great job getting us back up on the road here. And the Z-Man is calling in from McKee's Rocks. We got you. We got on mute, Cliff. Hello, Cliff.
1: Joe, it's a cold day in the rocks,
0: boy. I'll say. Uh, It's a little chilly up on the mountain, too. Anyway... Uh, Today's guest is going to be Dr. Thomas Robertson. He's the North American Director for the International Emergency Management Society, TEAMS, T-I-E-M-S. It's teams.org. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.com. J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. That's jondon.com.
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at com and com.
1: IAQ Net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net.
0: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. All right, I think most people know you can stream the show from our homepage on the website. To download shows, you have to go to the go to show link at the top of the page, and of course, you could subscribe to our podcast on itunes but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right we're going to turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question
1: thanks joe win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to CZlotnik at CS.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To- There, the crowd was a little slow today. Congratulations to Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products in Mars, Pennsylvania, for identifying dichloro-difluoromethane as the scientific name for Freon 12. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, February 13, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Now for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Name the early 19th century natural disaster that claimed the most lives of any natural disaster in the U.S. Back to you, Joe.
0: Thanks Cliff. Today's guest is Thomas Robertson, PhD. He's the director of the North America operations of the International Emergency Management Society, where he founded the Teams USA local chapter. He's the technical manager for Teams in the European Union Asset Program, which is developing improved participatory approaches to pandemic response. He is also the leading are leading the Teams initiative Disaster Resilience Establishment in Vulnerable Societies. Tom is also the founder and principal at Thinking Teams, an international consultancy to leaders and organizations seeking high-performance teams dealing with complexity, uncertainty, and risk. His clients include BAE Systems, the European Commission Directorate General for Research and Innovation, and the Oregon Built Environment and Sustainable Technologies. He's active in the Oregon Organizational Development Network's Community Consulting Program, which specializes in making not-for-profit organizations more effective. His PhD is in electrical engineering from Purdue University. That's where Cliff and I met him last year at the Teams conference in uh, Purdue. And uh, he did research in bioengineering, communications, and artificial intelligence. We've got some intro music for Tom. Help,
2: I need somebody.
0: All right, Doctor Robertson, do we have you on the line?
3: Yes, we do. Great Thank to for have. for the you. Beatles uh, introduction. One of my favorite groups. I'm okay. a guitarist too. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: He plays a little guitar. He dances. He's a multi-talented kind of guy. <laughs> and hangs you out. You A lot
3: of fun to meet that in life.
0: Yeah, absolutely I know we uh we enjoyed talking to you and harold drager at uh, at the conference last year. It looked like you guys had a good time and it was a nice conference. um we did a show from purdue and and people can go back and listen to that one but um before we go into that let's let's talk a little bit about first your background the type of work you do with thinking teams
3: yeah um I started out in uh, engineering, doing research in computer science type areas, and uh, that took me into uh, leadership and uh, business kind of things. I uh, spent a lot of years working and running organizations that did uh, research and development for the government, and uh, gradually I became most interested in the organization uh, puzzles. You know, how do you uh, get teams of people that have uh, expertise in different areas, different points of view, uh, to work together and uh, do good. Uh, And uh, I found that uh, a lot of the times uh, there's a lot to be, a lot of leverage in being able to do that well. So uh, I gravitated more toward uh, organization and leadership uh, kinds of things. And eventually when I moved out here to the uh, Portland, Oregon area, I uh, became an independent consultant and uh, started Thinking Teams, which really specializes in uh, uh, getting people and organizations to work better together and to be able to organize and uh, respond to uh, uh, the challenges that these kind of groups face. So uh, that's uh, that led me to... Uh, 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 what i'm doing right now uh which is uh started out working with uh, a lot of nonprofits out here uh, i still work with the aerospace industry and so forth and uh then i got involved with emergency management because uh, uh a guy i met in graduate school about 40 years ago uh Harold drager he's a norwegian uh is president of teams the international emergency management society and uh about a year and a half ago, he approached me and said, Tom, would you like to work with me on this? And I said, this looks like a, a good area to uh, with some challenging problems. And so I uh, jumped in. And uh, that, that led me to emergency management. And I've been uh, enjoying it and getting up to speed over the last year and a half.
0: Now, one of the projects you're working on is a pandemic response project, I believe. And, and that one, I don't think when our disaster restoration people think about disasters that they think you know a pandemic is necessarily a disaster but i'm i'm imagining there's a lot of ways they could fit in in fact i know there is when this ebola thing came up here recently one of the local contractors here was called to help you know clean one of the hospitals after you know if they were going to have a patient they were asked to clean what other types of you know, the connections do you see between the disaster response people and, say, pandemic work or whatever other type of work you're dealing with at Teams?
3: Well, the, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Really, we often use the term emergency as well as disaster. And uh, clearly, pandemics are uh, emergencies, and uh, emergencies can lead to disasters when you have uh, the kind of events we usually think of as, as being. Uh, explosive or one-time uh, uh, real problems. And uh, the, the pandemic area is uh, really interesting. Uh, the European Union uh, set up this uh, program after, they, uh, after their experience with the H1N1 uh, pandemic, uh, swine flu. And what they found out was that in spite of the fact that most of the Europe had some pretty good response plans, um, uh, for the pandemics that uh, a lot of the, the plans didn't work out too well because uh, of problems in communication. Uh, you may recall that uh, when the H1n1 pandemic started out, there was a lot of um, uh, fear because it, it appeared to be similar to uh, the Spanish flu virus, which was very lethal. It killed a lot of people and so, people were very concerned about H1N1, and uh, but it, it turned out that it ended up being milder than people thought and so forth. And so what happened was that uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, side communication with the advent of social media and so forth. There were um, uh, people were distrusting uh, authorities coming up with their own conspiracy theories. There there were some delays in uh, getting the vaccines out, and so people started to uh, make up stories that it was all about the uh, pharmaceutical in- industry trying to make money and that sort of thing. And so what happened was people stopped, would not listen to authorities. So the upshot of all this, and I, I think this this really links to uh, your industry, is that Europe said, we got to do a better job of um, engaging the whole community of uh, not just the public, but the companies and so forth that got to be engaged in responding to a pandemic, we've got to get them involved at the beginning in the planning stages. We can't do this sort of top-down. We're the authority. We're going to tell you what to do. Just follow us and you'll be saved because people don't believe us anymore. So uh, the the asset program that we're participating in, uh, Teams is participating in, Uh, is this consortium of 14 organizations. And the whole point of it is to try to get better at engaging the public and communicating with the public so that when a pandemic happens, uh, the right things are going to happen, and it's not going to be us versus them, authorities versus the rest of the community. So uh, I think this community engagement thing is a theme in in pandemics, and, and as well, What I'm finding out in emergency generally, uh, you can have uh, the experts that uh, are in charge of responding to emergencies or preparing for them, but if you don't engage all the players, it's not going to work out.
0: Cliff, do you want to follow up, or do you want me to?
3: No, you can follow up.
0: I've got to follow up on that because recently we saw the, the a similar type of reaction when the the Ebola or yeah the Ebola events were occurring here in, in europe and in the states w- was teams in the asset program involved in that at all um we
3: we were uh we have been studying it and bringing it to the, the study that we're involved with because ebola is a great example of um uh good communication and failed communications and um Uh, In fact, we just uh, gave a paper at a a conference in Venice that was uh, specifically about uh, communications in health-related emergencies and uh, was using uh, Ebola as uh, as an example. And
0: uh, as you
3: know, there's been a lot of um, uh, controversy in the U.S. about uh, restrictions on health workers that uh, were engaged in Ebola, what kind of uh, quarantine is required. Uh, you may recall the, uh, there was a woman up in uh, New Hampshire who was a, a nurse, and they were trying to get her to uh, stay at home, and she was refusing because she had no symptoms, and there was no objective reason to believe that she was infected, and so forth. Uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, panic, and uh, what, What's clear in a, a, the case of um, Ebola is that um, there there's sort of the scientific facts, but then there's uh, people's fear that's got to be dealt with. And the fact that, um, you know, I'm, I may be a person listening to uh, a health official say, look, uh, there's no danger here. There's no way that Ebola is going to be airborne, for example. You can only get it through contact. Uh, and then... Somebody may whisper in my ear that, uh, well, you know, it is possible that a uh, virus can mutate and become airborne, and it just takes a, a little bit of doubt before I'll start saying, you know, I know what the, the authorities are saying, but uh, I don't want any, I don't want to be anywhere around anybody that's got Ebola.
0: Do you know if the reaction in Europe was similar to the reaction here in the States,
3: yeah. Um, one, one statistic on that is, uh, for example, how many people are willing to get vaccinated? You know, there's a lot of uh, concern about that, not just for flu, but of course for things like measles. You know, it just came up that uh, measles is coming back because there's a segment of the population that's come to uh, decide that they don't want to get their kids vaccinated. Uh, there's a similar problem with uh, the flu vaccine which can be very effective in uh, controlling uh, a pandemic and if you look at the statistics of the percentage of uh, people that are vaccinated europe has um, uh, pretty high values in some areas and lower values in others and that's kind of mirrors what's true in the u.s you know there are areas in the u.s um, interestingly it's a combination of uh, people who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum and may not have the access to vaccines that
0: others do, but then also very
3: highly, uh, you know, fairly educated people, kids in private schools who, whose parents have made up their mind that uh, there is some risk in getting vaccinated and they're not going to risk their kid because after all isn't measles eradicated anyway. So there's, there's, a, there's an interesting mix and the problem is with vaccinations and uh, influenza or uh, measles is that uh, it doesn't take very many uh, people not being vaccinated till the there's a problem with uh, you know, you, you, you lose the herd immunity that you're looking for and requires at least 95% of the people being vaccinated.
0: Now, l- let's go a little more into teams and, and as I understand it, they started in the United States but grew faster around the world and now you're kind of helping to bring back the um, the United States division or the North American division. What was the what's the reason behind the finding of teams?
3: Well, it was originally uh, and and still there's a the focus of uh, if we can get together internationally and share information about. Um, Uh, experiences, knowledge, technology, research in emergency management, the world will be more resilient. Uh, And so there's been a a strong emphasis on uh, connecting people across the world that are engaged in emergency management. Uh, We have had uh, educational initiatives, uh, conferences in order to uh, make these connections. And so, uh, teams was originally founded there. There were uh, uh, there was a, a heavy emphasis on science and engineering in the beginning. That's still there. However, um, we've we've discovered over time that uh, to do what we want to do, which is to help the world be a, a safer place and a, a more res, more resilient to emergencies, is that um, you need to take the basic research, and you need to make it so it can be applied. So we, we engage with uh, practitioners, and not only that, but there are a wide range of uh, players and stakeholders that have to come together in any emergency, including, uh, uh, for example, uh, um, the restoration and demolition industry and so forth, and that uh, we're not going to do much good unless we can bring all that together. So... Uh, the organization's always been about uh, bringing together, and uh, as I said, the, um, uh, we've got quite a network across the, uh, the world. Probably at least 30 companies, countries are represented in the membership of teams. Uh, we've got uh, China, Japan, Korea, uh, Australia, India, uh, Europe. Uh, United States has always been a part of teams, but as you mentioned, uh, there are more members now uh, internationally, and uh, so uh, I got very enthusiastic about uh, building more of a presence here in the U.S. because I think uh, emergency management practitioners can benefit a lot from uh, the the vast amount of experience that the rest of the world has, and vice versa. The U.S. has a lot to offer the rest of the world, and I'm I'm, I'm sure that's true, particularly in, the, uh, for example, the demolition and restoration industries.
0: Cliff, let me turn it oh, to I'm you. Gonna,
3: gonna,
1: have you ever had any first-hand opportunity to go into any international disasters yourself?
3: Well, I've, uh, I've been... I've really traveled all over the world in the last uh, uh, year, and I've got a chance to um, see the aftermath of uh, landslides in Japan, for example, and uh, uh, earthquakes in China. Uh, however, I haven't been on the front line yet.
1: That's something you'd like to do?
3: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's there there, there are insights in, and and. Uh, Knowledge that can't be gained unless you're really there on the scene so I'm, I'm sure that would really be uh, uh, interesting
0: Thank we're, you. we were talking a little bit about pandemic and and virus etc and and I got a text from a listener saying that from an IAQ perspective, no attention to airborne bacteria and virus because it's difficult to test and measure unlike mold or unlike you know if you've got a flood, Or you've got a a hurricane or you've got a a volcano you can easily measure the damage and 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 it's it's concrete it's very you know it's right in front of you you understand what the 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 consequences are and, and how to deal with it so i wonder if that's part of the issue when dealing with these pandemics is getting i think you did mention actually that you know a lot of it's people just don't understand it and then you get Rumors, etc., going, and it makes it very difficult uh, to to get the proper response.
3: Yeah, yeah, it. Um, there are some uh, unanswered scientific questions associated with uh, pandemics, and so, uh, for example, there. Uh, we're learning more and more. Medical science is able to do. Uh, genome-type analysis of uh, the structure of the virus and be able to do some prediction there. But in, in terms of uh, predicting the effects, and, of course, when you talk about uh, spread of virus, I, I think there's uh, fairly well, um, you know, science is able to track uh, the, the path that virus takes. You know, for example, I think they figured out that uh, this Ebola uh issue originally originated from bats uh, in Africa and so forth. And so, uh, But there's a process of dis- discovery that's going on. And, and like uh, your texture mention- mentioned, uh, difficulties, uh, if, we, if we don't have the technology yet to do accurate measurements, then there's going to be uncertainties. And when those uncertainties, almost uncertainties of every kind, any kind come to light, and uh, the public can see that, uh, well, geez, even the experts don't really know here. There's some things they don't know that can contribute to the mistrust, and there's a real art in being able, uh, as an expert, to be able to uh, convey the right uh, balance of uh, known and unknown uh, that the public can take in. You know, They don't usually have the, the background to really weigh the factors the way an expert would. So there's a real uh, art to being able to communicate effectively so that the public gets the right idea and, and believes you.
1: Tom, I, I have a suggestion for you, and I'm not sure whether or not you've ever heard of a physician by the name of Alan Zelikoff. We've had him on the, uh, the show a couple of times, and uh, the interesting thing is you know, he's a physician, and he knows a lot about pandemics. He's studied this pretty intensively. And uh-huh. what it did is it you know his investigation in this uh, resulted in him developing a software program. Okay. And what the software program is for is for information gathering on the medical level. One of the things that really bothers him is in the United States that uh, there there is not a sharing of information between veterinarians and the human medical community. And what he said is that typically when we have a pandemic it's going to show up in animals first. You know, they're going to be dead animals and okay, yeah. of dead animals. And what happens is um, if Doctors and veterinarians would only spend about 10 or 15 seconds doing input into this that it would provide a much greater early warning system. And he actually had donated uh, this software, tried to donate it to the government. And I'm not sure whether or not, you know, they would take it or whatever. But if you Google him, he's a very, very interesting guy. And, you know, maybe the, the United States has to to learn second-hand, because if this system perhaps was done in Europe or in one of the other countries, you know, that was more open-minded, um, it might result in a great improvement.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, great. Thank you for the, the reference. And, um, you know, th- this is, this is a, a good example of he may have something there that for one reason or another just hasn't penetrated uh, our thick skulls over here in the U.S., and uh, maybe we can do something about that and make a difference.
1: Right. Well,
0: what I'll do is I'll get his contact information. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Let me, Dr. Robertson, you were at the conference at Purdue, and then there was an industry panel, and and the watchdog, the uh, Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli, will be joining us for our roundup today. He was helping to coordinate that industry panel. We had disaster restoration folks on there, and then we had the uh, demolition people on there, and there was there was a lot of academics at the conference, a lot of you know PhDs and professors, etc. I'm wondering what your thoughts were on how that went, what what the um, response was from the other people that were attending.
3: Yeah, it was really interesting uh, to see in that conference the mix of. Uh the academics and the industry folks. I thought it was a very rich interaction and that there was uh, appreciation from both sides. You know, the panel that uh, Pete ran was very well received, and um, it was clear that uh, the, the group at the building group there at Purdue was uh, uh, fully on board with using their. Uh, with, with teaching people who could go into the industry, be leaders. And, um, you know, the, the, the interaction goes both ways in any kind of a conference like that, too. I mean, people go off and they're doing their research, and if they don't really understand uh, the kind of things that uh, folks in the uh, restoration industry encounter every day, whether it's the uh, issues with that they encounter with, Um, uh, quality of air or use of materials and so forth, or the economic issues, because there's economic issues in engaging uh, the the type of businesses and so forth there. Uh, The better that the people who are trying to do the broad thinking and the research understand those things, the better they're going to be able to do their work and and have it actually make a difference. So I I saw some good two-way communication there.
0: And there was even a third group, I think, that I don't know how, long they stuck around and and listened in, but the government officials, you you seem to be able to bring some good government and and NGO-type speakers into these conferences, and we're going to break in a minute for our halftime, but for the second half, I want to talk a little more specifically about the conference you have coming up. It seems like it's a a 3 legged stool, you know, you've got the government. I, I wonder if you could comment on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah, there, there was a, a guy from the, um, uh, the World Bank, actually, which gets in, engaged in um, uh, uh, em- emergencies around the world and uh, international response. And um, that is one of the, the key things. And there are people in the government, of course, that are uh, in charge of uh, preparations and... Uh, they have resources at their command to help us with all these things. And the better they understand about uh, the things I was just talking about from the industry, they've got to understand the, the research and industry to do their jobs right. And uh, we have done, uh, I think teams have done a remarkable job of connecting with, the, with these people. And uh, as we'll, we'll talk about in the, when we talk more about the conference, it's really an unusual opportunity for these three legs of the stool to uh, get together in an environment where we can actually uh, talk and listen to
0: each other. Well, let's let's take a little break here. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Dr. Tom Robertson. We're talking to the director of TEAMS, the International Emergency Management Society, the North America Region Director. We'll be back in just a minute. Let's stop and thank our sponsors.
1: The indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Thanks Thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
1: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Thomas Robertson on. He's calling in from Portland and as I understand it, Portland is it Portland state where you're going to be doing the um, North American conference in I guess it's March. You maybe tell listeners a little bit more about that.
3: Yeah, yeah, the conference is uh, June 23rd to 25th uh, in uh, Portland, uh, downtown Portland. Portland State University is agreed to be the host of the conference, and we're going to be uh, meeting in their facilities, and uh, there's uh, all kinds of stuff within walking distance. Uh, Portland State uh, campus is right downtown, and it's a beautiful campus, and it's just accessible to uh, hotels and restaurants and all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we're having the the conference there. Uh, The theme of the conference is um, uh, emergency management in an interconnected world. And the interconnected part, uh, there's a couple of meanings to that. Uh, One of them is something we've already been talking about, which is uh, the interconnection of all the players, uh, uh, academia, industry, uh, government, uh, and then the various pieces within there that... uh, Uh, need to collaborate. Uh, There's interconnectedness. Uh, Another dimension is of course internationally and we we expect uh, uh, last year when we had uh, uh, what was a smaller conference uh, in uh, Mississippi, we had people from uh, 10 countries show up. So there's that international interconnectedness and what we can learn from each other, but then there, on top of that, is really the the nature of uh, our emergencies these days is um, has a, a dimension of interconnectedness because of the uh, increasing interdependence of the global economy, uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, a kind of a global infrastructure. For example, the information system and cybersecurity is an international issue. So, uh, energy. Energy is uh, an international activity. So all this infrastructure that uh, interconnects, this is a world, um, uh, transportation, you know, for example, we were talking about uh, pandemics, you know, because people travel all over the world. When you got a, a disease in one part of the world, it's going to spread. So all that interconnectedness is going to be a theme of our uh, conference, and uh, we're really looking forward to it.
0: I guess even finance, we were talking about the World Bank being a part of the, you know, doing a presentation at the last conference, finance is interconnected now, Uh, like you mentioned, the internet, communications, it's just, you've got to be able to work with different people and um, different segments of the industry need to be able to come together. Now, Portland, by the way, is a beautiful area, you are correct, and they've got some good public transportation, too, so you can get in and out of the town pretty nice on the they've got the train system there don't they
3: yeah they do yeah they're uh, they've got um, uh, uh, trains and trolleys that run around and in fact the uh, uh, the part of that system that's in the, the main part of the internal city is free I mean you just hop in and off and you're you can go all over the place
0: and what kind of speakers do you plan on having
3: we got we've got a really good Mix already. We're still uh, putting together the, the program, but it, it's quite a range. We've got uh, folks in the uh, from the research area. For example, we've got the uh, this is research and government combined. The dec- deputy director of the National Weather Service, uh, Laura Fuccioni, is going to be uh, one of our speakers. Uh, we've got. Uh, Go-Shang Q, who's a Chinese international expert on earthquakes. So there's there's and there's going to be uh, representatives here from several universities. Of course, Portland State will be there. Um, we're going to have um, uh, some speakers uh, that uh, that are associated with more global organization things. Uh, Ella Stanley, who's the a chairman of the global, global Board of Directors for the International Association of Emergency Managers. Uh, some of your uh, listeners may be familiar with that group is is going to be talking to us. And um, we've got uh, uh, Tom Starr, who's uh, chairman of the National Demolition Association, be speaking. He's on our uh, board of teams. And then we've got some uh, more local emergency management practitioners. We, we've got um, uh, Uh, Alicia Griswold, who's uh, King County Emergency Management. She's an expert in cybersecurity. She's going to be giving a workshop on uh, all the implications of cybersecurity uh, across the interconnection dimensions. And uh, a fellow named Jack Woodson, who's uh, in the uh, Energy Sector Security Consortium, he's going to be talking about safeguarding critical uh, infrastructures. And uh, one of the, the more recent Uh, speakers I've uh, got on board is a guy named Mark Glasser. He's a professor who teaches risk management now, but he's got an interesting uh, career. He's been uh, for years a U.S. government special agent dealing with all kinds of threats from uh, terrorism to who knows what. And uh, I've never seen a guy with so many initials after his uh, name. He's got like 14 certifications in Uh, Everything from emergency and disaster management to uh, law enforcement and all kinds of things. So, uh, it's going to be quite a cross section of uh, folks, both organizationally and internationally.
0: You know, folks may not realize Cliff and I were there last year, and Pete, the watchdog, he'll be on in a moment. He was there. It was a nice, relaxed atmosphere, casual, and I noticed the pricing. Was pretty reasonable compared to some of the conferences that uh, we go to. I think it was maybe three, four hundred dollars for uh, the the conference.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, three hundred dollars if you're a team member. Uh, four hundred dollars if you're not a team's member, and you get a, a free membership on top of it. And yeah, it really is a relaxed conference. And that that was one of the comments we had in our last conference was that. Um, there's such a diversity of people and anyone who comes to this conference has access to government officials they have access to scientists they have access to fellow practitioners and it's not a huge conference we're expecting probably less than 100 people and so you got time to have conversations and get with these people it's not one of these huge things where if you're lucky you might you know be able to ask a guy a question at the end of his talk so it's, it is a, a great environment to uh, to converse, to get, uh, you know, for people who are, uh, have specialized understanding of something like indoor air quality. Uh, who knows what the dir- deputy director of the National Weather Service knows about that, but I bet she really wants to know about more about that, and it would be important that she does in her decision-making.
0: You know, you bring that up. We've got a couple Text comments, questions. And one is about the the National Weather Service, I think, maybe got the attention of a listener. And it's what made me think about this. We have a current situation in Boston. Looks like they'll be hit again on Sunday. They've got, you know, roof collapses going on up there. One of the things I didn't think about that that Jeff mentions is that they're getting high carbon monoxide levels in some homes because they've got blocked vents. Um, Now we're also going to have flooding they have nowhere to put this snow. They're they're either melting it or dumping it in the ocean. Any thoughts on this from a disaster management perspective?
3: Yeah, I, um, until you mentioned that, that those problems with flooding and carbon monoxide weren't the things that popped to the top of my head as uh, the problems associated with the disaster. And, and clearly, those are very critical items. And I think that, the the more complete picture that uh, responders, uh, planners, and so forth have of the implications of heavy snow, like these people have had, uh, better off we'll be able to be prepared for this. I, I don't. I hope Boston has the means to be able to uh, respond to those aspects of the emergency. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, any preparedness uh, approach. Uh, you know, resources standing by to respond, needs to take that sort of thing into account. And so, uh, yeah, it's, of course, there's, and then there's, there's even the predictability stuff. It's, it's hard to predict. Uh, Boston's really gotten hit there, uh, and that's kind of where the National Weather Service comes in. They, they hopefully can get better and better and help us get better at, uh, uh, you know, knowing when these things are going to happen.
0: You know, you've mentioned all along collaboration, and, and I know Jeff, is he's an indoor air quality kind of guy. So he comes at it from a little different perspective than the disaster restoration guys or the demolition guys or, or whomever. And, and Cliff and I have always tried to bring that together on the show. We, we like to discuss indoor air quality, disaster restoration. We, we talk about building science issues, which all are directly related to, you know, resilience and disaster Um I'm just wondering, Cliff, did you did you have a question? I got a text from here. Did you, did I cover everything you wanted?
1: No, I think that you've covered uh I just, you know, wanted to be sure that we uh we caught the, the um the the texts. We're good.
0: What I'd like to do is we've got the global restoration industry watchdog coming in for roundup so I'd like to go to it a little early. I know he's going to have some comments and maybe a question or two. So, we're going to go to the roundup right now and we'll bring in Pete Consigli, but uh we'll be right back with our guest Dr. Tom Robertson and the roundup. Give us 10 seconds. Hit him on, hit him up move him on, move him on, hit him up raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out. cut him out. Ride him in. Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Do we have you?
2: Hey, Joe. Yeah, great. So I see you got my music now, huh? <laughs> I, you know, you got that, that first dog barking there. We don't want to scare any, any of the listeners off.
0: <laughs> Pete, I wanted hey, to bring you in up, early. Up,
2: uh, really, I've really enjoyed um, listening to uh, you and Cliff uh, chat with, uh, with Thomas. It's a uh, it's really good discussion. You know, like you said, a couple things I'll comment on and throw some stuff out there for further comments. But I, you know, I think that uh, we had really uh, a terrific time uh, when we first met, uh, Cliff, you and myself, Russ uh, yeah. um, the NDA folks, and the and the one party that uh, you, you didn't mention, but it was probably just an innocent oversight, is the lady from. Uh, Monique Pillay from the uh, all-hand volunteer people, those were the, the three groups that basically assembled to do the industry panel. He asked Tom about was um, with the restoration industry, the demolition industry, and the uh, volunteer assistance sector that gets involved in these, uh, you know, they basically are involved in doing global kind of cleanups. We first met them uh, after the Sandy Projects and. Uh, Networking with ever since, and hopefully one day they'll, uh, they'll get an opportunity to uh, to be interviewed on the show, uh, along with the NDA people too, which uh, I think they want to, but you know everybody's busy as so we may well be aware. So that went uh, went really well, and um, and we got the that's when we first met Thomas and uh, and Harold, the region friend, put together this. Uh, they've been involved for for 20 years with the uh, the Global uh, Association that you all have been talking about, and it just was. Interesting that it got started in America, but we had never had an American chapter, so I'm, I was very happy to hear that. And when I saw the notice not too long ago, that they're, 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 they're going to be taking the lead to have a U.S. chapter, and Tom, Tom's going to kind of be heading that up uh, to kick it off with this uh, with this first event in Portland. So uh, as, as you guys are aware, and I'll make your listeners aware, one of the things that I that I did after I saw, you know, the email and uh, call for papers and all that kind of stuff is I did put the, an email together that I sent out to about 35 or 40 industry, uh, you know, insiders and then people that are involved in the leadership position and management position for both the, the REA and the NDA, the IACRC, you know, and all their, their uh, you know, their uh, sub-brands, um, you know, and a handful of others to uh, encourage them to support um, this, the chapter and to, to get involved and specifically you know, there's such a strong um, regional membership that all of those groups have in the Northwest and if they can send some national people, of course, that'll be great too. You know, everybody, there's always a lot of stuff going on. You know, Tom Starr, who's um, my primary contact with the NDA group and who's, uh, you know, kind of coach counterpart, if you would, and on, uh, on the panel, of course, Rusty and it was uh, Jerry Myrick and, and Tom, were the two demo guys along with the, the Restoration folks. And, um, He's really done a marvel, marvelous job of, of, of promoting, you know, to the larger audience the demolition, uh, you know, the role of demolition pay, plays. And, um, and you know, through Purdue, like you mentioned, there is a connection between our two industries because essentially we have, uh, you know, we're connected because we have concentration programs under building construction management there for both industries. And recently uh, their association went through a... Um, uh, had retired their their long-standing uh, um, executive director had retired, and and the board and the association basically made the same decision that RAA did about a year or so ago, is that they the, we went through to move into the into a larger multi-management model, and they happened to just select Smith Buckland like we did. So there's a lot of synergy that's going on there, which really helps facilitate any kind of collaborative activities that the associate that the two associations work on. You know, for you know, for common the, you know, common things that they share through the academia, through research, or through association activities, networking with the members, et cetera, and then, of course, participating in the larger thing, you know, like these conferences and, and, and other things. So um, a lot's coming out of that. Um, I'm hoping that the follow-up to the Purdue conference next year is, is, is in Seoul, Korea. We're working on some of our members in Oceania and Australia and the region to, uh, to basically duplicate this industry panel. You know, like Tom said... Uh, it was very well received by academia. There was a lot of really great, you know, interaction. And, uh, and Professor Lee, is with the University of Seoul, who's sponsoring the next conference uh, next year to, to Purdue, um, we asked if we could organize a panel like that. So I think uh, I think that's the really the big picture stuff of uh, the kinds of things that are going on. And it, it, it's really very exciting. So, um I'm happy that uh, you guys are addressing this topic, and um, I'd certainly encourage any of the speakers, or the, excuse me, any of your listeners, people who are going to download the podcast to follow up on all this information. Now, the one thing I will say, Cliff, and um, this is a request that I have of you, and it just kind of came to me as I was listening to the interview. You know, as all of you listeners are well aware, you're going to be creating a blog with all the key points of the uh, of podcast, the interview with Thomas. Certainly, if you think there's anything of value that I said that you want to put in there, you know, you're more than welcome to go ahead and do that. Do it anyway. And um, but what I think is, I want to give a shout out for for Jeff Cross and Clean Facts. He did the marvelous uh, coverage of the complete write up and um, the news release information I sent out to a large group in the industry on that conference and and. Uh, it was just done recently after the first of the year because it was an updated version of the industry proceedings of our industry panel that had a cover sheet and a table of contents that wasn't on the Purdue website version, that, but we didn't change any of the core content that was you know, peer-reviewed by, by everybody, and that is suitable for education, for training. People could print it. They could put it in a workbook. It's about 20 pages, and um, he sent these links out all over the Clean Facts audience, which was huge possibly, Cliff, one of the things you can do to make your listeners aware of that will tie in with not only the team conference is put links in the blog to whatever Thomas is going to give you for that conference, but get that link. And if you don't have it, just send me an email, I'll give it to you. Because if you send out the Clean flax link, it hooks up so many things. It hooks up the Soul Conference. It hooks up the proceedings from Purdue. It hooks up industry participation. It hooks up links to all the organizations and associations involved. And... And it hooks up a link for people to either go to the Purdue ePubs to download all the proceedings from Purdue and or to get the updated version of, um, you know, to get the different documents and all the stuff that's out there. So that, from an informational standpoint, that would just be fantastic. And so uh, hopefully you can include that. Anyway, having said that, uh, Thomas, I don't know whether I'll be out there in Portland, but you know how hard I'm working to get, you know, people of influence uh, out there to support the event, and I'll be working really hard to do all that and, um you know, uh, and I don't know whether I'll be able to come to Seoul. People want me to, but I got too much going on. But there will be Oceana members there, and certainly if you and uh, Harold plan on being in Seoul next year, you'll, you'll meet some more of our members and maybe a few people that you knew and uh, and some other ones. So anyway, thank you very much, guys, and I appreciate the little bit of extra time today, Joe. Um, that uh, that was nice. Thank you.
0: Our pleasure, Pete. And
3: Pete, I really appreciate your uh, uh, support in uh, getting the word out and so forth. And uh, I, I do hope to see you in either Portland or Seoul.
0: Cliff, for Pete, let me throw this out to you. To I, I know a little on the disaster restoration side, but when I went to the conference last year at Purdue, it was the it kind of was like a light bulb for me. That when you had the demolition people there, um, you know, unless you're involved in these large scale. Projects, you don't really, you know, realize how important that that part of the industry is, and it seems to me like that's that's something the big disaster restoration companies they knew that, you know, the the Belfors et cetera, but it seems to me that some of the midsize and smaller people would be would be wise to go ahead and 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 start making some connections with the disaster or the uh, the demolition industry type people. Does that make sense?
1: I I'd go first, and then Pete can can add in. You know, demolition is a basic component of of restoration. You know, in certain situations, you know, the damaged materials need to be removed. I would say, in the majority of cases, restoration contractors handle that phase of the project with their own. Uh, employees you know a lot of our members have dump trucks and you know they bring in dumpsters and and so on and so forth in certain situations you know the demolition becomes a lot more sophisticated you're dealing with engineering issues and structural issues and and you know pinning foundations and cranes and so on and so forth and you know when they can't handle it uh you know certainly they're going to bring in uh you know a, a demolition contractor that's knowledgeable and has the equipment to do it. And then you have hazardous materials, and that can go both ways. Some restoration contractors do hazardous material removal, such as uh, asbestos uh, themselves. In other situations, they're going to subcontract that out. And certainly in demolition situations, you know, like we had Joe at the Pittsburgh airport you know, the place was really loaded with asbestos, and you know, it's a pretty sophisticated demolition project was required there. But I'm sure Pete can fill in some cracks, too.
2: Yes. Yeah. So let me, let me jump off of that a little bit Cliff. I think that the members of Blavaria and the general industry at large for restoration have a variety of different demolitions that they do, starting off on the really low and the simple end, which will, many of us call control demolition. which really has to do with drying and general interior remediation. When you move on to reconstruction and larger damage, particularly in fires or windstorms, then you're right. The larger companies in the industry, the DELFOs, well the DKI contractors, you know, et cetera, those kinds of companies you know, have different levels of expertise that they could either do in-house or they would partner with you know, a typical demolition contractor member of the NDA or some, you know, someone else in their local area. Now, the reason that the industries are on this kind of beautiful collision course here is because not only through Purdue, well, really, through Purdue is what's kind of started it, there are now majors and minors that are combining the skills of restoration, disaster, and damage repair with the demolition trade. And so as more students come through that construction management, they're going to become more multifaceted, versus being just kind of a restoration guy or, or a demo guy. It's going to be this combined thing. So this is, this is what academia does. is It has a huge vision, and it participates with industry by these job fair expos and the, and the Construction Advisory Council, which I sit on for RIA, but many of the member firms and different people in the industry have their own people there, to give academia industry input so they can train the students and the project managers of the future, superintendents of the future, with the practical information they want so that they will be hired and become effectively advanced in profession. But what, what happened that led to this panel is we realized that some huge um, members, of particularly European members that were affiliated with the NDA, they had essentially were looking for restoration experts and didn't kind of even know our industry existed. And through the NDA, they found Belfort, primarily Belfort, but some other ones, to work with them for to deal with the decontamination portion, which they do which they're not, you know, very, very aware of. I have also got hooked up to Seoul through my buddy Tom Starr with the primary demolition contractor in New Zealand, who's their main NDA contact he sits in their safety committee who has been the primary guy with all the Christchurch earthquakes. So I'm looking to reach out to him and, and you know kind of link him up uh, in a similar panel for Soul. So that that's really, really, you know very exciting stuff. But let me tell you something, and Joe and Cliff, and you'll remember this, and Tom also, something really very powerful was said from that panel by both Jerry and Tom during the Purdue sessions. Jerry and in, uh, made some comments, and quite frankly, it's, it's listed in the industry proceedings with him. He said most of the work that the demolition guys do are coordinated, uh, you know, through fire departments and things of that nature, and they're done by local contractors. So they're not always really big, monstrous contractors that you would think of. But he said they have a very difficult time trying to coordinate the government, a lot of these national disasters to get people to come down, and all kinds of issues that he talked about. They've addressed some of that in that paper, so I'm not going to take time to get into that. But he said something that just tugged at my heart big time, because, you know, I'm born and raised New Yorker, and when my mom was alive... She lived. Um, she had her New York apartment was literally one block on four, on Fifteenth Street and Seventh Avenue. It was one block away from Union Square, where the barricades were put up after nine eleven. That was the circle off area around Ground Zero, it went out for several blocks. When when those guys talked about what the demolition contractors in the New York area did to support the national cleanup at Ground Zero, it it was unbelievable. And he essentially said that three of them went out of business, and one of them, I think, is still surviving. And they did it for the greater good, and they essentially kind of got beat up pretty bad for a variety of reasons, you know, just the way it was. So, you know, keep that in mind. And that's the reason we need to, you know, there needs to be collaboration between government and industry and academia. But why these people needed to be supported, one thing they made very clear, they said, even after all that happened, that will not prevent them from responding to future, you know, national emergencies, things on the you know, on the scale of terrorist attacks and things like that. So <clears throat> it's important, but in order for these guys to be around to do that, they have to have a, a livelihood every day on the normal stuff. So that they're thriving and they're there, and so does our industry. So if there's any key message that came out of that for me, that's it. That was
0: i remember that very clearly as well pete that was that was very uh that was very compelling when when he talked about that and and how they actually went out of business because they were just trying to help do the right thing basically and um they didn't they weren't able to get whatever kind of type of reimbursement that uh, maybe they you know that they should have gotten and they they ended up going out going under because of it but the key was they said they'd be back anyway. So I think yeah, that's an I important mean, point.
2: So let, let me just say to the listeners, and anyone who's going to download listen to this, this is a much larger message here. It's a societal message, and it's this. The people who respond to these events, and from the day-to-day water loss to a, a simple demolition residential job after a fire, to tsunamis, national disasters, and to, to the World Trade is coming down, these you know, people serve a larger role in societal needs. And I'm not sure that everyone, all practitioners, understand that or the customers and the government does. It's not just about the money and not about the livelihood. Of course, that's all part of it. I mean, we all have that. But we, pro- we provide an honorable profession and an honorable service that the industry needs, society needs. People need that. Where where would they be if these contractors weren't around anymore? If the restores, the billboards, the DKI's, all the foot soldiers in the industry, um, and all these contractors... They'd be in trouble. I and agree. They need us. And not so only that, not Pete, sure they're the first guys to volunteer
0: when you need somebody. The, those very same people were the first ones to help support the local fire department or, or whomever. Um, and 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 you're right. Um, they need to be thanked for the services they provide. Cliff, anything you'd like to add? I've got one more quick question for, for the ahead, good sure. doctor. I, before we go, I want to know what what are your plans to help invigorate the U.S. segment of the International Emergency Management Society? Here,
3: yeah. Um, so we are our conference, and uh, we are acting as a conduit of information. As, uh, what's going on in the, the US. We also have an educational initiative that we're starting, and that is to engage with uh, a number of the organizations and people and, and uh, knowledge sources here in the US and connect them with international ones. And so uh, this educational initiative is one of the ways we think that um, we can uh know, an organization of our size can really make a difference. So we're, we're working to put together a, um, an e-learning, uh, distance learning approach that we hope to include information from you guys as well, so that we can, uh, that's one way we can spread the word. So those are two of the initiatives that we're working on to uh, uh, connect the U.S. with the rest of the community.
0: Do you have a, a an academia partner in that effort yet?
3: Uh, Portland State University is is working with us, but actually we're we're hoping to get uh, a number of academic
0: partners there. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's that's good. I I may even have an idea or two on that. So, Cliff, yeah, anything it. anything you want to add, Cliff, before we uh, ask the last question?
1: Well, I think the one thing that he did to invigorate it is he's got the watchdog on it, and the watchdog's on the hunt, so it'll happen.
0: <laughs> you got that right. Barking. Be- before we go. Just
2: remember, remember this, Joe, Cliff, and Thomas. The, one of the key messages of in our industry is we don't just restore property and damage. We restore people's peace of mind, and that, that may be the larger message. So having said that, you know. Thanks, Cliff, to
0: watch, so good <laughs> Well said, and thanks for joining us, Pete. Always appreciated. Before we go, anything you'd like to add, Doctor?
2: Uh, no,
3: I just really appreciated uh, a chance to talk to you guys and, and even learning about your industry starting back at uh, Purdue. And this is just a great example of uh, what needs to happen is, is getting people like you folks and uh, these other uh stakeholders in emergency management to, to talk, because uh, it's like Pete said, I mean, people are in this, uh, they, they got to make a livelihood, but, I mean, you know, Teams is an all-volunteer organization. We, we're here to, to make a difference, and uh, I think um, combining forces is the way to do it.
0: Well, it sounds like you're the man to lead that effort, and uh, we really appreciate you. Right away, when we got a hold of you, you said, absolutely, I'll be on the show, very much appreciated, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm very pleased to do it. Very good. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Thomas Robertson, and the, he's the director of the team's North America region. The Z Man's blog will have all the contact information. We'll put a link to the uh, to to the conference. Uh, flyer i also sent it out with today's show announcement i want to thank the z-man my co-host great job cliff
1: thanks joe
0: see you next week it's going to be a fun show oh yeah yeah i'll mention that before we go i want to thank the global restoration industry watchdog pete Consigli, my engineer john faith next week we've got ed ranieri is that did i pronounce that right cliff
1: That's it, Ed Reneering.
0: Cleveland Masters of Disaster. Ed's got an interesting story to tell, and uh, we're going to leave it at that for this week and leave a little suspense. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
1: This has been another IAQ Radio production.